You are listening to Overcomers Church International Podcast. Here at OCI, we are dedicated to our vision of building strong people and building strong churches. From wherever you are listening, we hope this message leaves you equipped and encouraged. I've got some good stuff that I want to share with you, and I'm excited to share the word with you. I love If there's one thing that I love doing as a pastor, as a minister, is just sharing the word because I I know what's worked for me. I know what's worked in my life. And I heard it said this way uh, recently that, and I love this, that the word was spoken so it could be written so it could be spoken. The word was written so it could be, excuse me, spoken so it could be written so it could be spoken. And the power comes when the word is spoken, not just when it sits there and doesn't have any activation to it. So it says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 that the word of God is powerful, it's uh, alive, it's, uh, I'm paraphrasing, this is Kent's version, it's sharper than any two-edged sword able to divide between the soul and spirit and bone and marrow and all of that. But it's a, it's a two-edged sword, and literally it means a two-edged mouthed sword. And the one edge of the mouth is God's word to you. One edge of the sword is God's word to you. And the other edge is when you take God's word and you declare it out of your life. You declare it out of your mouth. And that's what will cause you to be able to cut right through the thing that's been coming against you, that's been vexing your heart, that's been vexing your mind, that's maybe made your heart sick, that's making your body sick, that's whatever the situation is, the Word of God is the thing that will be able to cut right through it. Amen. Amen. I'm a very interactive preacher, so you're just going to have to get used to me saying amen, and that means you just say amen. And even if you don't agree with me, you just say amen anyways, amen. Hallelujah. Actually, I take that back. You should never amen something you don't agree with. Because amen means so be it unto me. So if you're hearing something and you don't agree with it, then you need to wait until you come into agreement with it or you're like, no, that's not something I agree with. But I'd like to believe that everything I say you you could agree with. Hallelujah. I don't know. When I was ministering this morning, I said a couple things and I thought, I don't think I even agree with that. But not really. I was just joking. I was just joking a little bit when I was ministering. So, man, we have to have fun. We were worshiping that we were worshiping this morning, and I just I broke out into laughter because yesterday uh, the devil tried to steal. I mean, like, I mean, it was very intentional. He just tried to rob me of my joy because Liz and I are like we're just we're dumbfounded because we're so we're standing right here right now and manifested prophecy and manifested dream and manifested vision right now. And this is one of the most exciting times of our life personally. And, and that devil tried to, tried to destroy me and my joy. And we were worshiping this morning. I just broke out and I just started laughing. I was like, oh, my gosh, he's nothing. I like what one guy says. He says, the devil is a zero with the rim knocked off. It's like, you know, there's all that's left with the zero is a rim, and he's not even that. He doesn't even have a rim. He's nothing. And so praise God. Hallelujah. So Philippians chapter 2, turn over to Philippians chapter 2, and uh, I really, I really reeled about, Lord, what do you want, what do you want me to share? What do you want to reveal to your people? Because I take ministering the word like very, very serious, sometimes, sometimes probably too serious, but 
I believe that the Word of God, like I said, is it's the most powerful, it's the most important thing that we have that we can get a hold of that really needs to get a hold of us to change our life. And actually, hold your place, and I was going back and forth, and I made my decision. Hold your place in Philippians chapter 2, and I want to go to Mark chapter 14, but I'm coming back to Philippians chapter 2, so don't worry. I want to go to Mark chapter 14, and I want to look at something here together that I think is really, really important. And we're going we're gonna to go to verse, uh, we're going to start at verse 3. So Mark chapter 14 and verse 3. And I think that there are basically two, two things, at least for today, this is the message for today. There are two things, because sometimes I'll give numbers of things and I'll go, well, these are the two most important things and these are the two most important things. But when it comes from the word, it all feels important, Right. And so when the Lord's quickening, it's just like, that's the most important thing. But I'm just going to say this, and it probably will really stand, that the two most important ingredients to living the life that God's called us to live is the gospel and a surrendered life. It's the gospel and a surrendered life. Because if your life isn't surrendered, God can't, he doesn't have anything to work with. <laughs> and if you don't know the gospel, we don't know the gospel we could be carrying the wrong message to the world. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of uh, ministers and things that are preaching things that probably are true, but it's not the gospel. And there's a difference because when Jesus came, it says that he came in grace and in truth. Moses came with the law. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's 1 John uh, chapter 1, I'm sorry, John chapter 1, around verse 17, somewhere in there. And it says that Moses, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So there is a huge difference between the old covenant law and legalistic kinds of things, all of the you have to do and don't do this. There's a big difference between that and what Christ has done on the cross and the work that he did, the finished work that he did. There is a huge difference difference between those two. So number one, a revelation of the gospel, I believe is beyond imperative for us to live the life, the full life that God has called us to. But number two is a life totally, completely surrendered to him. You know, I came out of a, out of a, a, a grace, I went to a grace school, it's called Karis Bible College, and Karis means Greece, Greece. It means grace in Greece, Is this going to be a normal for Sunday nights? I don't, I don't know. I hope not. It's grace in the Greek, which also is where Greece is at, right? I think. Anyways. <laughs> so you got to laugh. Where was I going with that? So, yes. So I went to a grace school called Karis Bible College. And actually, this is where Ron and Wendy's uh, son, Michael, uh, goes there. And they have another daughter that lives there that used to go there. And so anyways, and that's where I went. And uh, actually, Dale and, Mary is, Dale and Mary and son Robbie also went there. And he lives in Colorado. Anyways, I had some of those uh, folks over the years as I've talked to them about what God's doing in my life that <laughs> they've almost become like grace Pharisees. 
Now, not the ones that are leading the school and stuff. I don't mean that, but some of the students that I went, I went to school with. And it's like, it's like, what's the Lord? Because you'll see them at these functions and different things. You're like, what's the Lord speaking to you? And I'll say things like, God's just really led us into this time of just total surrender in every sense of the word. And they're like, oh, we're covered by grace. You don't have to work. And it's like, I'm not talking about working to gain something from the Lord. I'm talking about the fact that Jesus has done, done so much. The very least we can do is surrender every single area of our life. And so whenever you have a message, even a revelation, but you don't take the life that possesses that revelation and lay it over at the feet of Jesus, it really is non-active. Because a lot of times people are praying, Lord, use me. God, use me. Please, Lord, use me. But they really haven't made themselves usable. And making yourself usable is not, doesn't mean you go and clean yourself up and, and you, you got this great performance going on. It just simply means that you take your heart and say, Lord, here's my heart. Here is my life, not just my heart, but my entire life. Everything about me, everything about me, it belongs to you. And I believe that these two things, they go hand in hand. And I found this right here in the scriptures one day, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. And really, essentially, this is what you're going to get out of this, is that we, Jesus was anointed to die. You're going to read this right here. We also are anointed for death. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? All right, let's, let's read here in Mark 14 and verse 3. And it says, being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, apparently Jesus did not follow the CDC guidelines, and he was in with a leper. Um, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil, of spikenard, which I can't tell you what that is other than it's a very costly oil. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But let me just tell you something. Anytime you get passionately in love with Jesus and you lay things at his feet, you'll always find people that will criticize you for it. But you know what? Just don't worry about it because Jesus has your back. It says, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me you do not have always. She has done what she could she has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Now, I'm sure that there's all kinds of things that go behind this as far as customs and whatever that was going on. But I want you to see something here. She anointed his body for burial. And now look at the next verse. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Now, let me ask you a question. Who in here has heard the gospel preached? You've heard the gospel before. Let me see a show of hands. I believe every person in the room has heard the gospel preached before. Who has heard what this woman has done told with the gospel as a memorial to her? Let me just see a show of hands. So you've heard this before? This particular thing right here with the gospel, a few of you. Most of us have not heard, I was expecting no hands, and I'm like, oh, Lord, a few hands, what do I do? But most people have not heard this 
What she did combined with the gospel. The gospel speaks of the goodness of God. What she did spokes and speaks of anointing for death. Jesus was anointed by God through this woman, was anointed to die. And you know that the word says that in the same way that we are found in the likeness of his resurrection, we should also be found in the likeness of his death. Do you know that one of our very first commissions as Christians isn't to have, now I'm all about blessing and increase, healing, all of that stuff. I believe all of that is part of what Christ did at Calvary on the cross. He did for us. His blood paid for, I mean, everything that we could ever need, it paid for it. But really, our first job as a believer isn't to walk into this beautiful life. It's to walk into a life and say, here I am. I'm on the chopping block. Here's my life, Lord. You can have every single part of it. Jesus' message that he taught the disciples, it, it, was a very, it was not popular. It wasn't popular. I've just, I've just learned this as a, as a pastor that my job is not to teach things to, to gain popularity. And I've done a pretty good job at it. <laughs> Plenty of people that don't like me or whatever, but it's, Jesus likes me, so it's cool. It's no problem. But one of the most unpopular things you can say, but one of the most necessary things is that you need to lose your life. You need to totally surrender your life 100%. Todd White said one of the most, and says one of the most amazing things. He said, it's one of the greatest travesties when people will surrender their heart to the Lord, but they don't surrender their life to the Lord. In our Christendom, in our uh, Western culture, we're often taught, it's ingrained in us, we're brought, in, we're brought up in it, give your heart to Jesus and then, you know, lift your hands on Sunday morning and do a few things or whatever. But then we just go about the rest of our life kind of like, you know, whatever. And it's not that we're evil. It's not that, you know, people in the Western culture are evil or whatever. It's just that the mindset isn't every single thing in my life belongs to you. God, you can have it all. You can have my car. You can have my home. You can have my, my family. You can have all the clothes on my back. Literally, every single thing belongs to you. I am at your disposal. I am yours to command. That mentality really is not in our culture like it needs to be. But according to what this says right here, Jesus says that whenever this gospel or wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And you might say, well, this is just about her love for Jesus. Definitely. You can include that in there 100%. She had a love for Jesus. She worshiped Jesus. I believe she honored him as, as master, as the Messiah, all that stuff. But he anointed, she anointed his body for burial. Now, let me show you this over in Philippians chapter 2. You should have your place held in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 and in verse 5, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, there is so much jam-packed into these, these verses here. It's incredible. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. <laughs> Let me read this again. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, be, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, I'm going to get to the next part, but step number one here with this verse. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
that he considered himself, or let me read it so I don't, I don't botch it, who considered it not robbery to be equal with God. Do you know that we are equal with God? Now listen to me. Don't anyone get up and run out and say, he's blasphemy. <laughs> we are equal with God, or you could say equal with Christ in terms of our authority and in terms of our inheritance. Now, not in terms of deity. We will never be an object to be worshipped. There is only one to be worshipped, amen, and it's him. There's, there's no confusion about that. But in terms of our authority we have here on this earth, in terms of our relationship that we have with the Father, he is our Father, and the inheritance that we have coming from him, it says that Jesus didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. And it says, let this mind that was in Christ also be in you. So if you've been thinking yourself down here, you need to go ahead and start thinking like Jesus did. Let that mind be in you also and think of yourself seated with him in heavenly places, far above all rule and principalities and powers, that you have the inheritance, the blessing. All that stuff that was at, at, at Jesus and given to Jesus is also to you. But listen to this part. Here's where it gets a little bit more hairy. It says, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. This goes against, that, that phrase right there goes against everything. That is not everything, but I'll say 95% of what is happening in the Christian culture. It is a doggy, <laughs> dog, uh, whatever, church. People are always looking to make a name for themselves. You might say, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that. And you would tell me that, and I believe that. I believe that about you. You're not looking to make a name for yourself. But there's this whole thing that is going on in our, in our society about identity, and a lot of it ties into this whole thing about making a reputation. People feel like they need to be something in the eyes of other people. When Jesus, all he needed to do was be something in the eyes of God. And when you are something in the eyes of God and you know you are something in the eyes of God, you won't care about your reputation. That doesn't mean you don't care about integrity and, and you know, that you have a good name for yourself. I don't mean that. But you, it won't matter to you if you're important to anybody else because you are important to God. And as we develop in the Lord and we develop in our, in our right standing with him and our understanding of our right standing with him and our, our identity in him, then it just really comes to a place where it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about us. We can even preach messages like Jesus preached, calling people to turn from their ways and come to the loving Father and completely lay down their life and have the masses run away, but only reach a few and be concerned only with the few that we reach because we know that we're in good with God and God cares about us. I mean, you think about what it, what it would, would look like. I mean, when you compare what, what we consider to be successful in church today compared to what Jesus considered to be successful, it's totally different. One of the, one of the first things, <laughs> I always, I, I'm always meeting and meeting pastors and meeting with pastors, and I've got some circles of pastors that are stellar, and I, they're, they're wired like me, and I'm really thankful for that. But I'll meet a lot of other pastors here and there. First thing, almost always to ask, how many people you got going to your church? As if that's the measure of success. Don't catch me wrong. I want this place to be flooded over. I want people to be hanging from the rafters because they're so hungry to be touched by God. Don't catch me wrong. But having people in the seats or hanging from the rafters 
is not the measure of success. The measure of success is did you give them the gospel and was their life transformed because the message that you gave them to the point that they surrendered and laid everything down and followed him. Because as far as I can read from the word, when Jesus said some pretty outlandish things, the multitudes would turn and walk away from him. And he would turn to his disciples and he would say, are you going to walk? Are you going to leave me too? And you know, you would have thought they would have been like, oh, Jesus, you're just so wonderful. We will follow you to the ends of the earth. They're like, well, we don't have anywhere else to go, Lord. I mean, where are we going to go? I mean, we would go, but where are we going to go, you know? But, you know, that's ministry sometimes, I guess. But Jesus defined success by taking people and having their life surrendered with the right message moving forward to reach the world. Man. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. I mean, <laughs> some of the things that, that you, you see being displayed, especially if you're, well, I want to be careful. You just see a lot of things, and it's always about, like, even with the fivefold ministry, I believe in the fivefold ministry. I is in the fivefold ministry. I, I believe in it. I believe it's, it's part of the answer for the church to be set in order and to fulfill everything that God has for it. But I'm not something special because I'm in the fivefold ministry. Jesus was the fivefold ministry. He was an apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, all rolled in one. And it says that he came as a servant. He didn't come in and say, no, you refer to me as blah, 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 blah. He didn't, he didn't do that. He wasn't, a, he wasn't this demanding, commanding guy. He loved people. He was down to earth. He ministered to them. He loved on them. He was there to serve them. Huge difference, than, huge difference in a lot of things that, that we might see. And coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Remember the first thing that we read there. It says, let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. It gave the list of things. And then it says that he was found in appearance of man and he humbled himself even to the point of death. Just like Jesus was anointed for death, we also are anointed to die. Whenever he was speaking to his disciples and he would tell them, you know, if you want to find your life, you first have to lose it. And if anyone wants to find his life, let him pick up his cross and follow me. In, in our, kind of in our thinking, we think about the cross as like this beautiful picture of what Jesus did. And, and I actually agree with that. I mean, it's an amazing thing what he did on the cross. But we've almost idolized the cross and we've lost the meaning of what it really was. The cross only meant one thing in their culture and their time, death. It didn't, it didn't mean anything else except for death. It would be like, you know, I mean, how do they, how do they pers or not persecute, but uh, people like on death row, that like lethal injection. If Jesus was alive today, he would say, pick up your lethal injection needle and serum or whatever they do and follow me. Pick up your death instrument. And pick up your electric chair and follow me. Because the cross was an instrument of death to punish people and to kill them openly. To kill them openly. Full shame, full embarrassment, everybody could see. That's what the cross meant. So for us, it's like, pick up your cross. Oh, Jesus, I love you. And that's fine. That's good. I'm not trying to diminish that. But it's more than that. It literally means to lay down your entire life have nothing to do with any of your wants, your desires, any of that stuff, at least not ahead of following Christ.
It just comes back to this really simple thing of, God, my life belongs to you. It doesn't belong to me anymore. The mind that was in Christ Jesus, the mind that was in him to go all the way to the point of, the, of death on the cross, I'm choosing to allow that mind to be in me just like it was Jesus. I'm telling you, that is, that is our first and highest calling before anything else. It's our first and highest calling before anything else. Let this mind be in us that was in Christ Jesus to come to the point of death. Now, let me show you this, and I'm going to close here in just a minute. In Romans chapter 6, you guys getting something out of this? Romans chapter 6. Man, when I got a hold of these things, it really, really shaped the way that I was going about my life and even, even looking to the Lord because when I came into understanding things about grace and about faith and about God's goodness, I spent a lot of time trying to get that or trying to manifest that. And there's nothing wrong with doing that because God's given us things that we can freely partake of and he wants us to have it because he's a good dad and we should just expect those things. But I was missing an ingredient and it was this ingredient of saying, Lord, literally my entire life does not belong to me anymore. You, you know, when you take, when you take a, a, a dead man, you can spit on a dead man, you can, you can kick a dead man. I'm not saying we would do this. It would be disrespectful. But you could, you could do whatever to a dead man, and he wouldn't respond, wouldn't react, wouldn't do anything. Why? Because he's dead. You know, sometimes we have some, uh, some check that we'll see how, really how dead we are. When we have things come against us, people will say something, and it could be in passing, not even intentional, whatever it is, and all of a sudden we find ourselves, well, oh, I can't believe that, or oh, that, or that really hurt my feelings, or whatever. It's like, you know what, actually, we're not quite as dead as maybe what we thought we were. We're called to be totally dead to the point that no matter what people would ever do, I didn't even start, I didn't even say so much of what I want to say. I'm glad I got another week to come back in like 50 more weeks because I have so much stuff in my heart to say. I could go on for hours. But this dying is so essential for the life of a church. It's, it's actually, I believe, the main key ingredient to the church as a whole. And when I say that I'm not being critical of the church, I love the church. I, I've got a heart for the church, God's placed in me, and so I'm not being critical of that at all. I'm not being critical of any, any local church or even the universal church, nothing like that. But this is an, an ingredient I believe is missing. It's just coming to a place of total surrender to self. But whenever we're in and we're connected with people and we're ministering with people, and it's like, we want unity, we want to be together, and we want God to move in our midst, and then sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so says something or does something or we just don't quite like how something's going. And then we respond, we react, and we have stuff that, that takes place. No problem. Uh, it shows us sometimes the level of deadness that we're not at. And do you know why Jesus was able to love the people that put him on the cross? It's because he was totally dead to himself. His will, when he went and prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he went and prayed there, he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And what that prayer was, it was an exchange of wills. Because I guarantee you in the natural, and you can read it, I mean, he was like, Lord, is there any other way? Father, is there any other way for this thing to happen? 
And of course, the father revealed there is no other way. Then he said, not my will, but your will be done. It was an ultimate death to his will. And because of that, he was able to look at the people that hung him on the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. And sometimes we get into, uh, we get into church, we get into doing different things, and not just church, but even our own family or whatever. And somebody does something, moves the wrong way, says the wrong thing, sneezes a way we don't like, whatever it is. And we have this thing rise up on the inside of us. We need to realize that, recognize that, and kill it right away. Because if we're not careful, that thing will come in and bring disunity when God never intended for disunity to be in the church. Disunity was never God's plan for the church. It's the devil's plan for the church. Do you know agreement and unity are not the same thing? They're not the same thing. In Amos, it says, how can any two walk together lest they be agreed? And so it sounds like, well, you know, if, if you really think that we need to have brown carpet and I really think we need to have green carpet, we just don't agree. We can't walk together. Most people wouldn't maybe use that analogy. But, you know, there could be other things. There could even be some doctrinal things. We've got doctrinal things with people in, in church in, in, in Perryville. We've got some that are pro-vaccine and some that are uh, very against, you know, vaccines. I just talked about this this morning a little bit. That it's a divisive plan of the enemy to actually divide not only Americans from each other, but even brothers and sisters and Christ from each other. It becomes a divisive thing. But if you're in covenant with people, if you're in covenant with them, then agreement in terms of, of like, I think this way and you think that way, it becomes null and void. It, it becomes a non-issue anymore. And so in Amos, when it says that how can two, how can two uh, walk together lest they be agreed, you dig a little bit deeper into that. It's not talking about like, oh, you see everything this way and I see everything this way. Okay, then we can walk together. If that were the case, we wouldn't even be married. <laughs> we don't see everything eye to eye. Ron and Wendy don't see everything eye to eye. I guarantee there's no two people that see everything eye to eye. It's not talking about having that kind of agreement. It's actually, you dig deeper, it's talking about covenant. And covenant, very simply, no covenant in the Bible was ever made unless there was shedding of blood. What makes a covenant legit is when blood is, is shed, when there is death. So when Liz and I got married, it was the death of two wills, and it was the making of a brand new will, a brand new life. It was no longer Kent by himself, and it was no longer Liz but it was Kent and Liz together that makes up our marriage. We're in covenant. There is no, and I'm going to finish with this. There is zero fear that when we wake up in the morning, we could have a rotten, nasty fight the night before and go to bed. And we don't have fights like that. I don't know that we ever have, but we could. Maybe we should try it sometime and just see how strong our covenant is. No, I'm, just kidding. I'm just kidding. But we could have a really, really bad fight. And, you know, we could, we could go to bed and, and we should repent from those kind of things. I'm not saying just let it go. But if that happened, we could wake up the next day, go to bed, wake up the next day, and not have any thought of like, we know I think I just might divorce you. You know why? Because it's not about whether we agree on everything. We have a covenant with each other. It's stronger than just agreeing. It's stronger than feelings. Because when I got married to her and she got married to me, we both died and then we have a resurrected life together. This is exactly what it's supposed to look like when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. And this is how you bring unity to a church. This is how you bring unity to any family, to any group of people, is when they make a decision that I'm going to die to self 
And then I'm going to have the resurrection life of Christ in me and working through me. And it's going to bring healing to every single situation because it's not about whether I like everything or not. It's about the fact that I value that person and I value the body of Christ enough that I'm willing to lay down my wants, my desires, my personal preferences, even the offenses. It says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. He had every reason in the world to be offended. Listen to me now. He had every reason in the world to be offended, but made the decision not to be. We have no right, actually, to be offended with anybody for any reason, anytime, because Christ has died for all men. He's not offended and never did anything wrong. We actually don't even have the right to, to be offended or to stay in offense. We don't have the right to do that. And if we would just like get this mind and be like, you know what? If Christ can do it and he did it as a man, I'm going to do the exact same thing because I value people. I, I value unity. I value the body of Christ enough that I'm willing to lay down my right to be right. I'm willing to die to myself so that we can, ha we can have what God intended to be in the church, in my family, in my marriage, whatever it is. Man, I love death because of what comes on the other side of it. Look here in Romans chapter 4. I'm going to finish with this. I'm out of time. Romans chapter 4. Excuse me, chapter 6. Did I already tell you to go there? Romans 6 and, and verse 4, excuse me. It says, therefore, we were buried with him through the baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, it says, if we have been, certainly we also should be in the likeness of his resurrection. You cannot have resurrection without first having death. It's, an, it's, a, it's impossible. You have to have death if you're going to have resurrection. And what we want is the resurrection life, but we can't have that unless we first just totally surrender, die to ourselves, lay it all down. And when we do, if you come to a place where you just totally surrender and lay it all to the Lord, it literally, and I'm not saying that there's not a walking out of it, because the Bible talks about even though we're supposed to be dead, it also talks about being a living sacrifice. So we're alive in Christ, and so we have life, we have brains, we have, we have a soul, we have a spirit, man. We are alive, but at the same time, we're supposed to walk around as living dead people is the best way I can, I can explain it. And it says that, you know, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, uh, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Well, the problem with the living sacrifice is they just keep crawling off the altar. If you have a dead sacrifice, it's easy. They're just there, and they're just, they just stay there. But we're alive in Christ, so we have to make the decision to constantly stay on the altar. No matter what they did, no matter what they said, no matter what's happening, whatever, I value the unity. I value what comes. I value the resurrection that comes from staying on the altar and staying dead. I value what comes on the other side of it enough that no matter how bad it hurts, no matter how bad I feel like I'm justified in my actions to stay mad or whatever, I'm just not going to do it. Amen. If God is changing your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. If you would like to give or would like more information on how we are making a difference, visit ociperryville.com.